the book of Leviticus. We know you've been avoiding it because it's weird. So let's fix that. Now, remember, the story of the Bible began with humans in God's presence, but they were banished because of their rebellion. However, God wants to be in relationship with us. So he chooses one family that he will use to restore the world back into his presence. And so God's presence comes to dwell in a tent right in the middle of Israel. And that's great. But it creates a problem. Because it's so intense that Moses can't go in, and other priests who enter inappropriately, they die. Well, wait, if God's presence is good, how is it all of a sudden dangerous for people? So think of it this way. God's presence is like the sun. It's pure power and goodness. And when something mortal and corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. And so the word holiness is used in Leviticus to describe God's pure and powerful presence, which, like the sun, is both good and dangerous. So the point of Leviticus is to show how corrupt Israelites can live near God's goodness without being destroyed. Now, in the book, there are three ways for how this is all going to work out, and these are going to seem strange to you, but just hang in there with us. The first one is rituals. The second is this idea of the priesthood, and the third is a bunch of purity laws. Now, the book is broken up into seven sections, and each solution is explored in two sections of the book. The rituals are here, the priests are here, and the purity laws go here. Now, the first solution, rituals, involves a lot of animal sacrifices. And so Leviticus begins with detailed instructions for how to make these sacrifices. Some are ways of saying thank you to God, and others are simply ways of saying I'm sorry. And here at the end of the book, there are some more rituals. These are about observing sacred days and festivals. They're all celebrations that retell some part of the story of how God rescued Israel and set them apart from the nations. The second solution to the holiness problem has to do with priests. You see, being directly in God's presence is really dangerous. So he appoints priests as special representatives who can go into his presence on behalf of others. So in this section, we have a story about how the priests are ordained into the priesthood. And then this other section explains the set of higher standards that the priests have to live by because they work so closely to God's presence. The third solution in the book is all about purity laws. And this is by far the hardest thing to understand. For example, in this section, we're really concerned with knowing whether you're clean or unclean. Or another way of saying that is being pure and impure. Here's what we need to know to understand this. When you're in a pure state, you can be near God's presence. When you're in an impure state, you can't. And so it was really important for Israelites to know what state they're in at any given moment. So the first thing we have is a list of pure and impure animals. Yeah, this list of animals is divided up by where they live. So on the land, in the sea, in the air. And the text is just not clear about why certain animals are impure or why touching or eating them makes you impure. What is clear, however, is that avoiding these creatures will set Israel apart and it will remind them that God's own holiness should affect every part of their lives, including what they eat. After the food laws, we get a lot of random rules about things like skin disease, touching dead bodies, what to do with bodily fluids. But they're not random. All of these are things that the Israelites associated with life and death, which are sacred things because God is the author of life. Okay, but simply coming into contact with these things makes you impure? They do, but we have to keep in mind that it's not wrong or sinful to be ritually impure. You just wait a few days, take a bath, offer sacrifice, and you're pure again. 
What is inappropriate is entering into God's presence when you're in an impure state. Now, there's more purity laws over here in this section. Yeah, these focus on Israel's moral behavior. So these are laws about social justice, healthy relationships, having sexual integrity. Living by these laws will make Israel into a morally pure people who can live near God's presence. Those are the three solutions. Now, you probably noticed that they surround the very center of this book. And it's here that we find a really important ritual called the Day of Atonement. Yeah, so Israel's a big tribe now, and odds are there's a lot of sin happening that goes unnoticed that people are not dealing with. And so one time a year, the priests would take two goats, and one of those goats is killed, and its blood is carried right into God's presence where it symbolically covers or atones for Israel's sin. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Well, the meaning of the sacrifice is explained in the next chapter, where God says that the blood of a creature is its life. And so this goat's life is offered as a substitute. It's receiving God's punishment for Israel's sin so that the people don't have to. That leaves the second goat. Yeah, the priest puts his hands on it, and then he confesses all the sins of Israel. It's like he's placing the sins on the goat. And then that goat gets cast out forever into the wilderness. It's called the scapegoat. Yeah, I've heard that word before. Yeah, it's this very powerful image of how God is graciously removing Israel's sin. But let's be honest, sacrifices in general seem so barbaric. We have to remember that in the ancient world, sacrifices were the main way of buying favor from the gods. But the problem was that those same gods, they're unpredictable, they're fickle, you never know if they're going to ignore you or they're going to turn on you. And so it's in this cultural setting that we see Israel's God as totally different. He does get angry about human corruption, but it is never arbitrary. And he loves people. So he provides this clear way for Israel to know with confidence that they are forgiven and that despite their corruption, they are safe to live near his presence. And so that makes the book of Leviticus actually a revolutionary statement in its day. So that's Leviticus. But Israel's still at Mount Sinai in the middle of the wilderness. They need a place to live. Yes, the land God promised to Abraham. And so the journey to that land is what the next book of the Bible is all about. The scripture reading this morning comes from Leviticus. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. And I am reading from the Immersed Bible. If you want to follow along, it's on page 177. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons, who died after they had entered the Lord's presence and burned the wrong kind of fire before him. The Lord said to Moses, Warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain whenever he chooses. If he does, he will die. For the ark's cover, the place of atonement, is there, and I myself am present in the cloud above the atonement cover. When Aaron enters the sanctuary area, he must follow these instructions fully. He must bring a young bull for his sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He must put on a linen tunic and a linen undergarments worn next to his body. He must tie the linen sash around his waist and put the linen turban on his head. These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself in water before he puts them on. Aaron must take from the community of Israel two male goats for the sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron will present his own bull as a sin offering to purify himself and his family. 
making them right with the Lord. Then he must take the two male goats and present them to the Lord as an entrance at the entrance of the tabernacle. He is to cast sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which will carry the sins of the people to the wilderness of Azazel. Aaron will then present as a sin offering the goat chosen by the lot for the Lord. The other goat, the scapegoat chosen by lot to be sent away, will be kept alive, standing before the Lord. When it is sent away to Azazel in the wilderness, the people will be purified and made right with the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for giving us the Bible. Thank you that through reading it we can learn more about you and learn to love you. Send your spirit to help us understand your word today and to help us grow. This we pray in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. In regard to Wes's uh, remark about my birthday, the number remember is 63. October 13th, 1963. I'll let you do the math. I remember it like it was yesterday. So, uh, yeah. So uh, I, it was interesting, though, after the first service, my parents were here and I I never asked mom this before. I knew I was born on a Sunday morning, like at 730. I said, well, how was the labor? And she said it was the longest of all three kids. So all through the night, I said, well, good things come to those who wait. So. But uh, this weekend, October 13th, really isn't the most important day to me. Uh, I mean, it is important because the, the next day wouldn't come without me being born. But October 12th is the date that I really remember this weekend because 30 years ago last night, I proposed to my wife, Nancy. And uh, she did say yes, obviously. So it's, a, it's an important night for me as well. Important weekend. Well, this morning we are we're looking at... Um, Looking at this, this theme of Leviticus, we've been looking at different books of the Bible immersed as we read through uh, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. We looked at Genesis, Exodus. Um, I know I'm a week ahead in the sermon series, but we're looking at Leviticus today. And increasingly, like the book of Leviticus, it's it's a pretty confusing book. Uh, there's all these uh, kind of seemingly bizarre instructions about what to eat and what to wear and what to do and. And how you can approach God and their sacrifices and, and all the details about the temple. And, and it's just really, it's, it can be a little bit confusing. You think, what does this all have to do? How is this relevant to us here today in the 21st century? That's a good question. And, but as we're going to see today, it's very, very relevant and it's really important for us. Because there's a couple of things going on here. We're going to use a, kind of an analogy to kind of start with, to kind of help us understand a little bit the problem that the people of Israel were facing and that we face today. And then we're going to um, we're going to kind of continue to look at um, some foreshadowing. The idea of foreshadowing, of course, is this idea that in the Old Testament, a lot of the things that happen are predictions or, or prophecies or foreshadowing kind of they're kind of that point to Jesus Christ that point to what he's going to do for us and the impact of all that when he comes as a human being uh, in, in, at the turn of of, of of I guess zero first century okay first century so we're going to use those two kind of tools start with an analogy then move into kind of the foreshadowing and the story of two goats okay let's start with the analogy um, say you come into your office or you're at home doing homework, you turn on your laptop, your computer, Chromebook, whatever, and it begins to, this dreaded thing happens. It begins to spin. You see a little hourglass, it's spinning, 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 buffering, buffering. Uh, that's frustrating, right? And it's just not working like it should. And you have to step back and troubleshoot. 
Is it a poor connection? Is it something with the Wi-Fi or the modem? What's going on here? Or, or God forbid, is it a virus or, or malware? What do I need to do here? And so if you're like me, the first thing I do is I turn it off, right? And turn it right back on and, and I reboot it and hope that something works. And often it does. If it doesn't, then I just talk to somebody who's under 30 years old. Okay. They help, they help you figure it out. So you can do that with a computer or your phone. But what do you do? What do you do if something like that happens in your life? What if in the world around you or in your life as a person or in family or marriage, what if, what if you need a reboot? What if things just aren't working right there? You're, you're spinning your wheels. The connection isn't good between you and others. Maybe your connection isn't good with God and, and you, and it's just not working right. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to have a, a reboot? Take a look at this, uh, Dilbert, the comic strip, uh, you, if you know Dilbert at all, he's kind of a kind of a thick, dense kind of guy, uh, an office, kind of an office guy, kind of every every man kind of guy. Uh, it, this is from one of his cover, one of the books about him. He's obviously having problems with the computer, his system, and he's talking to IT support uh, represented by a dog, I guess. And uh, it says, have you tried rebo- try rebooting yourself? OK, wouldn't that be nice if we could do that? Just reboot ourselves, start fresh, no bugs, no problems. And after that, everything runs smoothly. We're the person we want to be. The world works as it's supposed to. Just reboot. Well, if you use that sort of as an analogy, the problem that we have that causes this in our world and in our lives, our connections with others, our connections with God, is something the Bible calls sin. It's sort of a a human malware system, okay? It builds up like a toxin in us as individuals or families or communities, and it destroys relationships. It, it hinders communication. It creates chaos. Another way to think about it, it's, it's like cancer, a dreaded C word. Uh, it eats away at joy and peace and wholeness and, and health, and it interrupts and, and, and hinders our connection with each other and with God. So how do we deal with that? Can we just reboot and everything's like, a, you know, like we want it? How do we do deal with it? We can, we can try a couple different tacks. We can ignore our sin. Um, that doesn't make it go away. We know that. We could try to deny it or, or excuse it, but that just compounds it by placing blame on others or, or lowering expectations of ourselves and other people. We can try to live with it. Just That's just the way things are. You know, that's who I am, how I'm wired. I, that's how the world is. But then guilt and shame become so overwhelming that we can't ignore it any longer. So what do we do with this, this malware that's wired into our world and to us? This thing called sin. It's a problem. The Apostle Paul writes about it in Romans 7. See if this is your experience. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. That's a lot of doing in in, in everything. So the idea here is we need to clear out the sin and the guilt. We need to renew our connection with God who gives us life. How does that happen? Well, let's take a look at this passage that was just read from Leviticus 16. 
And this is how the people of God dealt with their sin. This is something God gave them to do. This is how you can reboot in a sense and deal with your sin. It's called the day of atonement. And, 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 and the root of the English word atonement provides its meaning at one mint. Okay, so you have this idea of two individuals or two groups of people and they're not together. They're not one. The relationship is hampered or hindered in some way. There's a division there. And so in atonement, things and people, groups of people that are not together are brought together. But most importantly, it's talking about a relationship with God. Okay, literally in Hebrew, it means to cover so to cover, to cover over something, to cover over our sin. So it's not seen, it's dealt with. And it's connected to this idea of the Ark of the Covenants. You know, in the, you know, Pastor West talked about this a week ago, about the, all the building of the temple and the Ark of the Covenant and all that. It's, this is, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence with his people. Okay? It was where God did interact with his people the most directly, where things were dealt with. In the Ark of the Covenant, uh, there would be blood sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant to atone for sin so that people could be made right with God, at one with him, and ultimately at right with each other, at one, one with each other. So there's this idea of, 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 of the, the sin is removed and the connection is restored. Now, the Day of Atonement, which in Hebrew is Yom Kippur, so it was sort of a a, a, a spiritual reboot. And actually, interestingly enough, last Wednesday was Yom Kippur in the Hebrew uh, calendar. And so Jews all over the world observe the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, on Wednesday. So we, we have this, 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 this Day of Atonement with all this the detail, and there's so much more. We just read ten verses of it. Let's dig in and see what it has to say for us this morning. Verse 3. When Aaron enters the sanctuary area, he must follow these instructions fully. He must bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So let's stop for a second. So this is for him personally. He's the high priest. Aaron is the brother of Moses. He's the high priest. It's his job once a year to go into the Holy of Holies uh, and to represent his people before God on our behalf and to make the sacrifice of blood on the Ark of the Covenant. But before he does that, he has to deal with his own sin, right? He has to be clean to do this. So he has to follow all, all these instructions. He has to make a sacrifice, a young bull, a ram. And then it says he has to do this. He must put on his linen tunic, so the outer garment, and the linen undergarments worn next to his body. The only place in the Bible, by the way, it talks about underwear. Okay? So he has to put on his holy underwear. No, not, not holy underwear. That's a sacred, sacred underwear. He has to put on his sacred underwear. And it says this, he must tie the linen sash around his waist and put the linen turban on his head. And these are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself in water before he puts them on. So pretty elaborate. What is, what is this? Why does he have to put on certain underwear and wash himself and sacrifice this and that? What's this have to do with us today? What can we learn about God? What can we learn about ourselves? Well, it might help to have a little bit more of the picture. Uh, a little about the temple and this day of atonement and what was all involved with it. Well, many scholars say that um, at this time that you could fit 210,000 people. It's a big crowd onto this temple area. Uh, and that at the time it was built, 18,000 workers were employed to do this. They used 2.3 million stones to build the temple. And the stones, some of them were 10 feet by 10 feet by 80, 80 feet. So hundreds of tons. 
we don't even know how they moved all this stuff. One historian says that when the temple was built, not the sound of a chisel was heard in Jerusalem. They carved the stone someplace else because you wouldn't have that, want to have that going on. You know, guys making noise, guys sweating, making, you know, make whatever. They don't want all this happening in this holy place. Josephus, one historian, says that the gold at the top of the Holy of Holies were clusters the size of a grown man. So it's a massive, massive production. Picture this also. On the day of atonement, a couple hundred thousand people gathered after 10 days of weeping and crying and fasting and denying themselves and soul searching. They come together before their God to have their sins removed. And one man stands in the gap, the high priest. He has to go into the presence of God on their behalf. So he has to make sure he has everything in his right place, including even his underwear. Okay. So, So this is the place, the temple is where heaven and earth interact. The lines are kind of blurred. This is where God speaks to his people, where sins are taken care of and atoned for. So what's the deal with all this pomp and circumstance? Why all the elaborate details? It's helpful for us as we look at the book of Leviticus to understand there's a primary theme that runs through it over and over and over again. A a variation of this statement that, that we hear God say over and over to his people. And the statement is this. I am the Lord, your God. I am holy. So you must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Now, how do we do that? Why why does God say that? He knows that we can't be holy. So what's this about? Again, I think God is using all this elaborate detail to to present something very important to the people. He wants them to understand who he is. He's holy. He's different than the other gods of the, of the world, of their culture. And because of that, we must take our sin very seriously. We can't just waltz into God's presence flippantly, cavalierly, presumptuously. We can't minimize our sin. The prophet Isaiah had a vision of God, and he heard these words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah's response, woe is me, I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips because I've seen the Lord, the King Almighty. In other words, I'm a sinful guy. I fall really short and I live with people who do the same. So who are we to be in his presence? And so we could leave it right there and that'd be kind of discouraging, right? But God, because he loves us and because he knows that we can never become holy in ourselves, he provides a way. Once a year in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, their sins could be dealt with. A sort of spiritual reboot. So that's kind of the analogy we want to start with. Now let's take a look at these two goats. You have goat number one and goat number two. All right, so there's two goats. One goat, as we saw in the video, is selected to be slaughtered. The other one is the scapegoat. And the one that's to be slaughtered, it, I mean, there were offerings of sacrifices every day. There was another altar where people would go in the outer courts of the tabernacle, the temple, and they would make offerings of doves or goats or sheep or bulls or, you know, whatever. They would do those things, pigeons, and they would have those things uh, uh, offered on their behalf because, hey, I did this. I did that, I did that. Well, why do they have to have a separate offering on the Day of Atonement? 
What's so important about this? Well, there are a lot of things that we do in our world that we're not even aware of. You know, there's a lot of our sins that we're not even aware we do. And so on the Day of Atonement, this was for the sins for all the sins, confess and unconfess, all the sins of all the people. And that's when the high priest goes in and he spreads the blood of this goat, the sacrificial goat, on the atonement cover. So there's that aspect going on there. Seems strange. But this is all pointing to a different way, right? A better way. It's pointing to Jesus Christ, a better sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus took care of all these sacrifices once and for all. We see this in Hebrews We see it in Colossians 2, where Paul writes, The Old Testament religious festivals, the sacrifices, the sacrificial system, in other words, are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, the fulfillment, is found in Christ. So the blood of the goat, the first goat, goat number one, in the Old Testament, points to the blood of Christ who dies to atone for the sins of all the people for all time. That's good news. Hebrews says something similar. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here. So Christ is not just the sacrifice. He's also the high priest. He's both. He fulfills both roles. So Christ, it says, when he became, he came as the high priest of the good things that are already here. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Talking about heaven, not an earthly tabernacle. That is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. But he entered through the most holy of place once and for all by his own blood. So it's his own blood that allows him to enter on our behalf. And through that, we obtain eternal redemption. And it goes on to say a few other things. And it says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve living God. So these other sacrifices, they were only good to a point. But Jesus' sacrifice... Uh, is good for us eternally, once and for all. And because of that, we don't have to be afraid of God. We should fear him with reverence and awe. We should love him. We should, be, we should worship him. We, we should humble ourselves before him. But we don't have to be afraid of him because it says this. We have confidence now to enter the most holy place. It's not just the holy the priest can go in there. We can all enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way uh, open for us through this curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So we don't need goat number one anymore. God, through Jesus Christ, has restored our broken connection. Jesus is sacrificed for us. Once and for all, he's taken care of that. Goat number two. This is the scapegoat. Let's read that again. Verse 10. The other goat, the scapegoat, chosen by lot to be sent away, will be kept alive standing before the Lord. And when it is sent away to Azazel in the wilderness, the people will be purified and made right with the Lord. So imagine again the drama. There's this high priest, hundreds of thousands of Israelites. They're all watching this. This is an object lesson, a foreshadowing, okay? And there's this goat number two. The first one's dead, and goat number two is standing there thinking, Am I next? No. no. What, what happens is the high priest lays his hands over this goat's head, and he, 
he basically transfers all the guilt, all the shame, all the sin of all the people, sins they've done, sins they know about, sins they don't remember, sins they don't even, aren't even aware they did. He places it all on top of this poor, innocent goat. And then the man appointed for this task, and tradition says it was a Gentile man, because, you know, and this Gentile man would take this goat and lead it out into, into the wilderness and set it free, never ever to return again, never to be seen again. So it's a, it's a powerful picture of what God does with our sin. As Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. So the scapegoat carries away all these sins into the wilderness, far away from a holy and perfect God, because God cannot, he cannot be around sin. He's holy and perfect. Sin is burned up in his presence. Sin has to be dealt with because he's a holy God. And so this, this goat, blame is shifted from the guilty people to the one, this goat, who did nothing wrong. He's a scapegoat. And the point we can pull out of this is that, is that obviously no goat can remove sin or guilt, right? Only God can do that. No matter how big the sacrifices are that we make, no, no matter how noble or grand, that does not make up the gap. That does not pay for our sins. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And so this leads to the fulfillment of this foreshadowing, what happens on Good Friday. Jesus is tried, crowned with thorns, carried across. He's led out of the city, away from the temple, away from the most holy place, outside the walls to a desolate place called Golgotha by Gentile soldiers, right? And he, he's the scapegoat that takes away, from, takes away the sins of the world, removes them away from a holy God. So what... Two goats could not do, the Son of God was able to do. He took upon himself sin and guilt that we cannot remove. He sheds his blood to restore our connection with him. And he takes our sin far away from us, far away from God, and buries it in a tomb of forgetfulness. So we don't need those goats anymore. We don't need goat number one. Because the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover all of our sins, past, present, and future. We don't need goat, goat number two because our guilt is permanently removed, never ever to return again. So, if you've sinned, we've all sinned, I shouldn't say if. If we sinned by being greedy or angry or, or sexually immoral or taking God's name in vain, if we've been bitter, if we've hurt people, if we've, been, if we've bullied others, if we've ignored others, if we've done something that we shouldn't, if we, ha- if we haven't done something that we should have, if we've looked the other way when we should have gotten involved, if our marriage has fallen apart, if we've ended the life of a child in the womb, if we've done all, just fill in the blankers, all sort, all those sins have been forgiven through Jesus Christ. All of them have been removed from God's presence, never to be remembered again. Because Jesus is the only sacrifice that we will ever need. And Jesus is our scapegoat in this sense. He does for us what we can never do for ourselves. And because of that, we can be made new in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're grateful for what Jesus Christ has done for us. Uh, We look at the Old Testament and 
It's confusing at times, but Lord, we know that your word points in all things to Jesus Christ. We thank you that he's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He shed his blood for us um, and so that we could live with him forever. He has taken upon himself all the guilt and shame and the burden of our sins, and he became our scapegoat in this sense, an innocent, an innocent person, an innocent man who took all that weight upon himself and took it to the cross. So it's out of God's presence, it's forgotten, it's dealt with. So, Lord, we thank you for that. And we thank you that your motive in all of this, all of this is your love, your love for us. So, Lord, we worship you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.